Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever, and here we are. It is February, and this is our monthly Q&A. Hello, my amazing producers, Sanford and Adam. Hello, hello. Hey, what's going on? You guys ready? You guys ready for some fun, juicy stuff? We're ready for our Love Month Q&A. The Love Month Q&A. Let's fill it full of leafy green love. I love that. I love it. All right. Wait, Adam, Adam, you had something to say. No, I've just been looking through some of the questions. I like some of the imagery that has come up as a result, but we will get to that in a moment. Imagery? I don't, I don't yeah. know that. I don't know what that. You guys means. didn't see Doug's question here? I, anyway, Doug, we're going to answer your question, but. Uh, yes. Doug's question's a good one. Okay. I, I have no idea what the group is talking about, but we're just going to forge ahead <laughs> with this month's Q&A. Here we go. Our first question is from Facebook. Ness Gioria wants to know, I would love to know uh, what you would recommend, Juliana, for hot flashes and severe sweating from menopause. I don't believe we've ever discussed this before. Oh, well, how exciting. Here's a great opportunity to talk about menopause. It's a really important question. A lot of women suffer with it. And I would say, I don't know, Ness, if you are already on a whole food plant-based diet, but it is incredible the results that have been seen with eating a whole food plant-based diet and menopause and hot flashes. And so, in fact, this is totally anecdotal, but I know so many people that have slipped through menopause without even noticing it because they had been on a plant-based diet for so long. So I know that's anecdote, but let's get to the actual science science. So we know that a low-fat plant-based diet was shown in a study of just last October in 2021 that eating that with about half a cup of soybeans a day added to a salad or soup reduced a moderate to severe hot flashes by 84%. Uh, and then this, this whole study, like an overall hot flashes decreased by 79%. So that's including the mild ones. So that's kind of exciting. Um, so it's the whole food plant-based lower fat. So that means, you know, avoiding refined oils is a really easy way to make your diet a good level of fat. There's, you know, the soy thing. This so people are always so afraid of soy, but soy has so many health benefits, and this seems to be one of them. Including, it also reduces risk for breast cancer recurrence and mortality from breast cancer, prostate cancer. So there's definitely some benefits to consuming soy foods. And soybeans are a great way you could do, you know, that's the edamame that you you could just kind of nosh on. It's so delicious. Or tofu is another good way to get your soy in. That's one of my favorites. Or tempeh great sources of soy. There's also some research on supplementing with those long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. We've talked about this um, previously, but basically, you know, on a plant-based diet, you're getting your omega-3s from flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts, those foods. And the source of the omega-3 in those foods are it's come from something called ALA, alpha-linolenic acid. And then our bodies get to, get to elongate that molecule into EPA and further elongate that molecule into DHA. And just because you're on a plant-based diet, we don't necessarily elongate enough. So necessarily, we don't know exactly. But I do recommend people take a long-chain EPA and DHA formula from microalgae. So it's plant-based. It's basically how the fish get those long chain fatty acids. So you're kind of going straight to the source and skipping the middle fish. That's one thing to consider in terms of helping your hot flashes as well. Interesting. I know Adam was really curious about that question. Um, so Adam, did we, did we answer that question for you? I don't know quite the imagery I was going for. I like the word middle fish though. That was good. <laughs> I love it. 
Thank you, Ness. Thank you for that question. Thank you so much. Our next question also from Facebook is from Leanne Tucker. Leanne would like to know, um, what are the best strategies for perimenopausal or menopausal whole food plant-based ladies to lose weight and keep extra weight off? Interesting that we're seeing this theme about perimenopause and menopause today, but with respect to weight loss, there really is no difference in how you approach it depending on where you are in life in terms of menarche and menopause. There's not that much difference. No matter what, I always say it's not fun to lose weight because you have to create a deficit. There's really no way around it. Now, you know, hormonal things happen and it may increase cravings, it may increase appetite, but it always comes down to creating a deficit. And what I do with weight loss, what you'll, you'll read in the Choose You Now Diet, it's about finding a space and time where you could set aside to eat less and to do other things and to focus in on, you know, finding a time of day to eat, you know, focusing on your meal frequency and then focusing on making sure you're eating whole food plant-based. You're avoiding animal products and processed foods, highly processed foods, so that you're really sticking to the wholest food possible, getting maximal fiber so you get all that satiety, and then just not overeating, which is you know, very easy to say and not so easy to do. So it's about this mindfulness that I like to implement. It's about t- tuning in to true hunger signals, you know, using that celery stick test. So if you're hungry enough or celery sounds fabulous and delicious and tempting, okay, maybe you're actually really hungry. And otherwise, it's something else going on. If you're eating just because you find yourself walking to the kitchen or because it's quote unquote time to eat or because everyone around you is eating doesn't mean you are hungry. So tuning in and learning to recognize true hunger signals. And then perhaps what's even harder is knowing when you are just satisfied. Because I know myself, I don't have an off switch. I love to eat. And once I'm eating something good, I don't want to stop. And I have to kind of you know, put on these external, you know, forces <laughs> to where I like talk like mind games where I say, okay, can I be done right now? I'll give myself two minutes to go check Instagram, do something different and stop that hand to mouth behavior. Just enough time for me to go, oh wait, actually I am satisfied. I don't need to eat more because really to lose weight, you need to eat very little. You just, you, you really need to give yourself enough enough food to keep your GI tract going, but also you want to make sure that your body can go through the body fat. Like the body fat is stored energy. It's stored energy for later. The problem with us is that later never comes. We are constantly bombarded with food. So you do have to create a deficit no matter whether you are premenopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal, or a male that never has to deal with that at all, lucky men, no matter what, you still have to find a time and space to do that and take lots of loving care of yourself while you're doing that because it's not fun and you have to like take a break from like entertainment eating and just and just get it get that weight off. Very good. Very interesting. Thank you, Leanne, for that question. Really appreciate it. Our next one comes from Instagram at Myron John wants to know, and I want to know this as well. What are some foods that stabilize blood sugar levels or at least foods that spike blood sugar that we should either stay away from or eat small amounts of? I love this question. Well, it's so interesting because we know that things like sugar, refined sugars, spike blood sugar. And we know that you know, we hear that commonly. And so we're told, you know, stay away from candy and cookies and, and all that stuff. But what's really interesting is that, you know, what else is really bad for blood sugar regulation and glycemic control, as we call it, is saturated fat. And where do we get saturated fat? Primarily from animal products and tropical oils. So 
Again, I know I sound like a broken record, but if you get back to eating a diet of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, mushrooms, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices, and infinite tasty combinations, that's all you need to do. It's like limiting or omitting completely those animal products, those refined oils, these sources of saturated fat, like coconut oil that on a plant-based diet people consume. You know, coconut milk is very common on a plant-based diet, but those things are also high in saturated fat. And saturated fat is associated with dysregulation of blood glucose levels. So again, stay as whole as possible. So if you think about a whole grain, right, you think about the intact whole wheat kernel, right? Then you refine it further and then you refine it into a whole grain bread and then you refine it further into a not whole grain bread, just a bread. And you get to a white bread. All Every time you strip it, you're stripping it of fiber and basically it's going to more easily get the blood sugar levels higher. So ultimately get as whole as possible, stick to the most intact version of foods, stay away from animal products and, um, and the most whole and least processed, the better. Oh, and sorry, add to that. The only way we've actually reversed, and I see this all the time with my clients, the only way we've actually reversed type two diabetes, which is basically like dysregulation of blood sugar, right? And inability, like insulin resistance. It's like a, a, a chronic state of insulin resistance where our body cannot metabolize sugar in the way that a healthy bloodstream does and a healthy body does. The only way we, we've ever reversed that advanced stage of, of that element of, of uh, type 2 diabetes is with a plant-based diet. So you can actually... I've seen people get off their medications even once they've been on insulin, like actually in, injected insulin and all the other medications, the oral glucose agents, all that. I've seen people reduce and get off of those medications by switching to a whole food plant-based diet. So people are afraid of so-called carbs, right? They lump everything together as carbs. But if we stop talking about carbs and start talking about food, it doesn't really matter. And, and even though a whole food plant-based diet may seem like a quote-unquote high-carb diet, it's the right kind of carbohydrate-rich foods. It's the right uh, ratio of fats and protein and carbohydrate so that it ameliorates your blood sugar control and keeps you healthy and it and avoids you going down that path towards or through type 2 diabetes. Very interesting. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a little predictable in my old age. <laughs> not, e not even close, but I figured that was the answer. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you at Myron Johns. Thank you for that question. Uh, next question is from Facebook. Tia, Facebook. What's Facebook? Facebook. Tia wants to know, I'd really like to be vegetarian, but I have a soy, legume, dairy intolerance, which makes it very hard to not be starving all the time if I stick to plant-based. So she doesn't do well with high-carb diets either. So they feel totally stuck. What could Tia do? Oh, Tia, I would love to get my hands on you. <laughs> would be so much fun for me because there's so much packed into that question and frustration and a history of really trying to understand yourself and your diet and your response to diet. But I would love to tease that apart because if you have a soy legume, a soy and legume and dairy intolerance, which would be so fascinating, like maybe that's because you haven't stuck to eating legumes regularly. Maybe it's because dairy is something you shouldn't be eating anyway, because upwards of 65 to 90% of world populations are intolerant to dairy because we stop producing lactase at a certain age. Like we're the only species that actually consumes dairy after weaning. We're the only species that consumes dairy from another species. So we're not supposed to be drinking cow milk, especially after weaning. We're not supposed to be drinking milk. That's why we stop 
producing adequate levels of lactase to absorb it and or to digest and absorb it. So you're probably not supposed to eat dairy. And I, honestly, I, I can't tell you the extraordinary benefits and and results I've seen from just that one step of getting clients off the dairy. That's In fact, if you guys learn nothing from me at all here on our Q&As, the one thing I recommend, I could blanket recommend, is to cut out dairy. Ditch dairy. It is scary. You don't need it. It's not healthy. There's so many better ways to get all of those nutrients that dairy industry is brilliant at promoting. We're probably going to get kicked off the podcast, guys, um, just FYI, but that's okay. Um, I have science to back up all of this. And I have seen personally thousands of people have extraordinary benefits from kicking the dairy and um, including myself. I've had that, I had that same experience. It's, it's saved my skin and my GI tract and my sinuses. So anyway, that's one thing. Soy and legumes, you know, sometimes there's, you know, when you're switching from a standard Western diet or you're switching from most kind of diets, which are very, very deficient in fiber, like we're supposed to get a minimum of like 14 grams per thousand calories, which is like nothing. And you know, 97% of Americans do not get the minimum recommended fiber. So all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm going to try eating some more plants. And you eat a lot of plants and guess what? Fiber hits your gut and your microbiome goes, whoa, what the heck is going on here? I'm used to like a very low fiber diet. So it's a very different it's a very different, my, sorry, my phone rang. Um, my best friend was trying to insert herself. But um, basically, fiber, if you're not consuming it, the microbiome is completely different. Once you consume fiber, the prebiotics that the microbiome, the healthy gut microflora love and live on, the healthier gut bacteria thrive on fiber. It is their fuel. And once you fuel them happily, those wonderful gut microbes will get rid of the bad microbes. They like kick out the pathogenic microbes. And ultimately, if you continue to consume plenty of this fabulous fiber, your microbiome becomes a whole different landscape and it, you will be able to handle all of those foods better. So it takes a, it takes a period of time to get used to it and you have to be consistent and stepwise and very conscientious about it. And just one more thing about the high carb diet, like saying you don't do well on a high carb diet, that doesn't mean anything really because what is a high carb diet and what does what your carbs consist of? Remember that all whole foods have some ratio of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And um, a candy bar might have the same amount of carbohydrate as a baked sweet potato or blueberries or something that's super healthy. So lumping carbs together doesn't really give you any information. So I think you're stuck because of the language and like lumping things together and something we like to call bunching. If you really kind of tease it apart and really try incorporating more fiber-rich foods, more whole plant foods into your diet, and you stick with it and you start letting your microbiome change, you might be blown away and you can easily slip happily into a lifelong, health-promoting, nutrient-dense, plant-based diet. And beyond all of the brilliant information in that answer, um, Adam, merch shop, t-shirt, dairy is scary. Dairy is scary. I don't know. And we have to figure out a face, a face on a milk carton, something like that. I mean, or like Perhaps an, an uh, angry wheel like, of cheese or an angry looking cow. Yeah. There's oh, many yeah. ways we can go here. <laughs> Those Mad cows. Cow. There's many ways cow. we can go here. Anyway, right. thank you for that. Cow on there. 
That was, that was really interesting. I was wondering what you're going to say about that. Thank you, Tia, for that question. Good luck to you. Good luck to you. This is, uh, this is Adam's favorite question of the day from Facebook. Doug wants to know, actually, Adam, would you like to read the question? Do you want, do you have it in front of you? Do you want me oh, to oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got sure. this. Yeah. This is from Doug Percival on Facebook. All right. And Doug wants to know, how can we get enough calcium on a vegan diet short of, here's the imagery, short of eating 25 cups of cooked kale every day? Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Doug. And thank you, Doug, for constantly being very supportive on Facebook. He's a really good, um, he's been around for a long time and he's always answering and, and commenting. And I really appreciate all of his feedback. So, Doug, I'm happy for your question. It's a very good question. Coincidentally, I just posted a little reel today about calcium. I was literally writing my some notes to answer this question and kind of was doing some calculations, which I'll get to in a second. Doug, I'm in. While I was doing that, my uh, video came in and, and it was all about calcium. So it was kind of like a calcium kind of a day. Who knew? So let's talk about calcium really quickly. Calcium is the most abundant mineral in the body. 99% of the calcium in our body is all in the bones and teeth. Did you guys know that? 99%. No, We're shaking our heads. That. Yeah. No, that's great. That's interesting. Which begs the question of what about that last 1%? Don't you kind of want to know about that? So do you ever get your electrolytes taken? I had my labs drawn yesterday and I had to get my electrolytes, electrolytes drawn and on the electrolyte panel is calcium. So in your bloodstream is about that 1% is hiding in that bloodstream. However, it is such an important 1% of calcium. It is so important because it's an electrolyte that if it goes down or up, it could cause like a heart attack. It could cause all sorts of major things. So our body is so careful because we're so brilliant. We regulate that calcium super, super tightly. So much so that if it goes down, we will pull from our bone to make that 1% the level it needs to be because it is that important in the bloodstream. So that said, we need to get some calcium. It's very, very important for bone health, of course, because it's such a primary part, a component of the bones and um, we need it. So where do we get it? Well, let's just say how much do we need first? Adults need about 1,300 milligrams a day, okay? Um, this ranges. And then like adults from ages 19 to 50 need about 1,000 milligrams a day. So it, that's kind of like the sweet spot, right? 19 to 50 years old is like the majority of people probably listening here. And so you need about 1,000 milligrams. After 51, you need about 1,200 if you're a woman and 1,000 still if you're male. So you're pretty good about 1,000 milligrams. Now that sounds a little bit daunting when you're like, well, I'm not getting it from, well, let's say milk, okay? Well, the cool news is if you swap in one of the myriad plant milks that are now available, there is a plethora of plant milks on the market. Hemp milk, rice milk, oat milk, uh, cashew milk, soy milk. There's so many milk milks everywhere. And so if you get them from the market, uh, you know, uh, commercial, most of them are fortified. And the good news is they have the same amount of calcium as does dairy milk, but without all of the harmful effects of dairy. And I just checked my favorite milk that I've been into lately. It's a cashew milk. I just checked mine in the refrigerator. It actually has more than I purported. It has about 400 milligrams per cup. So, so Doug, for you, I came up with a sample menu because I feel like this is something that is very doable. So let's say you have a cup of tofu, which really isn't that much. So a cup of tofu is 500 milligrams. That's half your day right there. So say you don't want a cup of tofu, you just want half a cup of tofu. That's still 250 milligrams. That's a quarter of your daily needs. Okay. Then you have a cup of cooked kale. So instead of 25 cups of cooked kale, which by the way, I bet I could eat, Adam, what about you? Want to have a kale, kale down? Yeah. Let's just let's live stream that at some point. 
I think that'd be really fun. I bet I would win the in, in the race too. I could do it real quick. No joke, but we should live stream that one night. That would be that would be fun to watch. Anyway, back to you, Juliana. Talk about leafy green love. <laughs> yeah, the really. pent ultimate. I'm in. So a cup of cooked kale, which is super easy, a hundred milligrams. The raw is less because have you guys noticed that when you cook a green, it goes from like a mountain to a pea, the size, the volume. So we always have to kind of, you know, assimilate for that when you're, when you're calculating. Okay. So a cup of cooked kale, which I would rather have three cups of cooked kale or whatever, but I don't want to be crazy on the kale because not everyone loves kale as much as I do. That's a hundred milligrams. One cup of beans, which, you know, if you look at my six daily threes, I recommend one to one and a half cups of legumes a day. There you go. One cup is a hundred milligrams of calcium right there. And then let's say you have a cup of plant milk. So for my lunch today, I had some nacho cheese sauce and I made a really thick, creamy cashew cream that's spicy with my cashew milk that has 400 milligrams of calcium. So I just had that in my, just the sauce that I poured over a bunch of beans and corn. And I made a, um, I did those Tex-Mex stuffed peppers from the new book, from the Choosing Now Diet book. So good. And and then if you have a cup of cooked broccoli, you get another 100 right there. So that's five, six, seven, nine thousand. That's about 1,100 milligrams if you have the cup of tofu. So if you just have half a – so again, that's really doable, don't you think, guys? Does that sound crazy? I mean, it sounds less crazy than 25 cups of kale. And I, and I often think of when I saute spinach, as I, like I do all the time, you have this huge mound of spinach that – yeah. Oh, but okay, not to be that person, but I am. Oh no! I know. No, I mean, this, is your, this, this is your show. Like by title, you oh, are that person. Oh no! <laughs> sorry, sorry, not sorry. I gotta say it. I gotta say it. public service announcement as your what? your loving uh, dietitian. Yes. Okay, spinach is fabulous. It's delicious. It makes recipes look really pretty. Like the greens when you blend it, it's like the brightest green. It's so pretty. It's so easy to. It's less bitter than all the other greens. But, but, bum bum bum. But it is high in oxalates. So specific to minerals like calcium, it is not as easy to absorb the calcium from spinach. And so, alas. It is not so great. So I rec- well, the the reason I say that too wait is because second, so many people think it. But wait a second, you're classifying spinach as quote unquote not so great compared to kale. Got it. Okay. Or broccoli. Oh, okay. Interesting. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Continue, please. Well, I would say here's the reason I pointed out because I'd be fine if you had spinach once in a while. There's nothing wrong with that. I had it the other day in my favorite bowl, but. If many people are like, oh, I could tolerate spinach. That becomes their green of choice. And then that's all they have. I have clients that come to me, their food journals, that's all, their only green is spinach every day. And that's when it could be a problem. So you don't want to risk oxalate stones. You want, don't want to risk not absorbing your calcium. So just mix it up. You know, and by the way, you guys, for what it's worth, romaine lettuce has all these th- wonderful things in it too. Romaine lettuce has protein in it. Cabbage, cabbage is fabulous. It has all, cabbage is really high in calcium. I see you sticking your tongue out, Sanford. You're not I, I, I am not a cabbage fan at all, but I get Bok choy? What about bok choy? I love bok choy, but actually I was happy to hear you just talk about romaine lettuce. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there, it is helpful to eat that. That's very interesting. To me. Indeed, indeed it is. It's good. Folks, see, we're all learning things today on the Love Month q and I, I, That's why I love these episodes. These are so good. Adam is sort of like sitting there. Yeah, like, I just it's great. I've learned that I, I, I eat, more, eat more spinach, guys. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> no, paying Pope, attention. Popeye, Popeye didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah, Listen right. to Juliana. I love it. 
I don't know if Popeye had kale back then. Uh, funny. All right, this is good. This is really great. Okay, cool. We're gonna move on. Uh, from Facebook, Annie wants to know. Uh, Annie says, "I have hypothyroid and I'm highly sensitive." Another dare question to dairy and gluten. Is it okay not to eat grains? I thought this was a really interesting question as well. Okay, so I'm going to unpack this because there's a lot of things thrown together here that don't necessarily match, like don't necessarily um, meet, like it doesn't necessarily have to do with one another. Hypothyroidism has to be regulated with a medication most of the time. Like you need to like deal with this with medication. So a lot of people, depending on why you're hypothyroid, there's different types of hypothyroidism. Most of the time you need some kind of synthetic thyroid um, medication to keep it regulated. And diet's really not going to impact that too much. I've seen some people benefit and be able to reduce it. I've seen people that lose a lot of weight if they were um, had excess weight. And so that helped minimize their, or um, have them reduce their medication. So with the hypothyroid itself, depending on its etiology for you specifically, uh, you're probably going to have to, you know, stay on your medication. But with respect to you being highly sensitive to dairy and gluten, I'm glad that you're sensitive to dairy. Get rid of it. Kick it to the curb. You don't need it. You're better off without it. Doesn't matter about any other reason. There's no reason to consume dairy. And then gluten, you ask, you say you're sensitive to gluten, so then avoid gluten by all means. That's fine. But the reason I said these are all not necessarily linked together is that you ask if it's not okay to eat grains. There are so many gluten-free grains that you absolutely can enjoy if that's what you're concerned about. Gluten, remember, is a protein found primarily in wheat and wheat's derivatives, and it's also found in rye and barley and oats when cross-contaminated. And so that's easy. I mean, well, it's not easy. I wrote a book on this. I wrote The Complete 80s Guide to Gluten-Free Vegan Cooking because it is, it's something. You know, people do have these gluten sensitivities. So it's, and I honestly, I do too. And I found that being gluten-free was way harder than being vegan, like crazy much harder to avoid gluten. But so because of that, I had to do a deep dive into all the grains that were gluten-free. So there's quinoa and there's rice and there's millet and there's amaranth and there's a whole slew of delicious gluten-free grains that you can enjoy and not have to worry about the gluten. So so to answer your question, you still probably have to stay on your medications for your hypothyroid. You should definitely kick dairy and you can avoid gluten and you can still include whole grains if you want to. That said, remember on the six daily threes, I do not include whole grains because, not because they're not fabulous and not because they're not wonderful culinarily speaking and satiety speaking. I love whole grains, but because there's nothing unique in whole grains that you can't get in those other six daily threes, the vegetables, leafy green vegetables and cruciferous vegetables, the fruits, the legumes, the nuts and seeds, and mushrooms and fruits. So you can get all that. Um, if you go to my website, plantbaseddietitian.com and look at the six daily threes, that's all on there. You do not need whole grains, but you can enjoy gluten-free versions if you would like any. I, I, I have an addition here and I'm not an expert, but the other day, I went to the store because I was looking for oats, all right? And they were all out of Quaker oats. I'll be honest, I just buy Quaker oats because I'm not worried about cross-contamination. I'm not sensitive to gluten. But found this bag on the shelf. And you got to look for it now if you're looking out for it. It's called, I bought it because the guy on the front looked funny. He looked like the Quaker guy. Bob? Bob's, Bob's Red Mill Whole Grain Gluten-Free Oats. And I, I, well, I'll be honest, I haven't tried them yet. But shout out to Bob. Um, <laughs> great oats. Bob so, has a lot of great products. I have a lot of Bob's products on my shelf. You got to write Bob up. Bob, why aren't you? Why aren't you sponsoring this? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah, Bob, we would totally promote you, even with with yeah, even we are now because we love your product. Yeah, why don't you roll your oats over here? <laughs> 
That's the Don't quote of the out. day. Yeah, I'm going to clip that and send it right over to him, too. That yeah. is the quote of the day. That's <laughs> awesome, you guys. That is awesome. Thank you for that question. That was really great. This is our last question uh, for this episode. I have to say, I love doing these episodes, these questions. We all learn stuff, even Adam. I love it. I love it. Here we go. Last question from Facebook from Ashley is this. Is stevia okay? I don't use it daily, but I like to occasionally have a true lemon mix. Um, sorry, excuse me. Let me do that again. Uh, is stevia okay? I don't use it daily, but I like to occasionally have a true lemon mix-in or a zevia soda. Juliana, what do you think? We've actually never gotten this question before. Yes, I do not recommend non-nutritive sweeteners. Okay, so stevia is in the same category as, you know, saccharin and all of those. All of the products that are touted as calorie-free or low-calorie sweeteners, not good for so many reasons. And, you know, I'll tell you what I've experienced with my clients over the years, but scientifically speaking, non-nutritive sweetener consumption is strongly associated with, ironically, obesity greater waist circumference, metabolic dysfunction. Like it is something that is, it actually has a negative effect. So people are consuming these thinking that they're saving calories and it doesn't matter, but really our bodies are like, oh, we taste sweet. Sweet hits the tongue and our bodies are so brilliant. We can't outsmart our bodies. I always try to bring it back to how brilliant our bodies are naturally. Our bodies recognize the sweet. It's going to have these same releases, right? There's the same kind of releases of insulin and all that to absorb the, to go out for the sweet. And then there's no calories. So it's kind of confusing. Neurologically, it's confusing. Um, it's, it's just very confusing for the body is a way to say it. But there's also some information about, like people are wondering, well, why is this the case? And why do we see all this, this these metabolic changes happening from something that has no actual sugar in there? Well, there's a lot of research showing that it's probably because of changes, again, in the gut microbiome. You guys, you know, we've, we've interviewed a lot of people and it's amazing how it seems to keep coming back to the microbiome. Like our gut bugs, like the, the, these microbes that live inside of our guts are even more powerful than any other part of our body, it seems. It's crazy. But the mu gut microbiome may be, you know, linked to insulin and increasing secretion, incretin secretion. That's not easy to say. And there's other mechanisms like upregulating adipogenesis, which is like fat genesis, right? Production of fat altered nutrient sensing by the brain. There's like these neurological impacts. So there's lots of research showing this stuff. It alters the gut microbiome. It's associated with all these things. It's associated with increased cardiometabolic diseases. Um, so I don't recommend any of this. There's also, oh my gosh, there's also research showing a significant decrease in memory and encoding memory and executive functions when you use these products. And then I'll go back to what I've seen with my clients. So the science definitely supports that these are not health-promoting and they can be absolutely harmful, actually. What I've noticed, because you know I do a lot of weight loss with my clients. That's one of the, the main things I do on my day-to-day, my, my, -day, my day job. And a lot of people use these products, myself included. I use these for decades. Oh my God, I was eating, drinking diet sodas when I was in like junior high or even before because I was a dancer. You guys know that story, but um, totally obsessed with that stuff. Here's what happens. These Artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners are hundreds or thousands of times sweeter than table sugar, okay? So you put that in your brain and your brain goes, ooh, super sweetness. And talk about cravings. It like, it levels up your threshold for sweet cravings. And all my clients that are trying to get over quote unquote sugar addiction, this is a big culprit. As soon as I have them cut this out, it makes that so much easier. When I cut those out, 
I eventually got to the point where I couldn't eat anything sweet. In fact, I can't, sometimes fruit is too sweet for me. That, and that I would have, you, no one would ever believe that if they knew me in my first three or four decades of life. So it's crazy. It, non-nutritive sweeteners are not all that they are, you know, touted to be. So I would recommend ditching them completely. You know, if you want to have a soda like water, I always, I have my, my plain soda water. I'll add some lime or lemon juice, some fresh, like actual lime or lemon juice or some berries or, or just drink it plain or, you know, there's other ways to, or just do tea, you know, do a tea without those, those non-nutritive sweeteners. But there's plenty of ways to get some flavorful beverages into your life without all of those harmful um, effects. Terrific. I love it. These were all great questions. Thank you, as always, to our listeners. We could not do these episodes without you. Keep them coming. If we have not answered one of your questions, please keep putting them on social for us to see. We really, really do love answering these questions. We learn so much. So thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Producer Adam and Producer Sanford. And thank you all for your questions. We do love them. Sanford is right. This is so much fun. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, become a member of our Patreon page, patreon.com slash choose you now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash choose you now to have access to exclusive bonus content. Please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with your questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love. <laughs>